Are you ready to perform at your highest potential? Welcome to the Performance Matters Podcast from GP Strategies. In each episode, we'll interview industry experts, exploring best practices and innovative insights to help you and your organization improve performance. I'm your host, Jeremy Shear. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Performance Matters. My guest is Ian Croft. He's the Director of Business Consulting at GP Strategies. Ian, thanks for making time. And my pleasure. It's great to be here. So our topic today is quantifying the future success of your organization. But first, tell us a little bit about yourself and about your background and your work at GP Strategies. Thank you. Well, as you probably noticed from the accent, I'm not, although I live in America, I'm not an American. And I've been here. What? Yeah. <laughs> it's shocking. I couldn't tell. I couldn't tell at all. <laughs> yeah, as people say to me, you've got an accent. And I normally say, yeah, and so have you. So there we go. But um, yeah, been here 13 years in the UK before that and grew up in the, the West Country, as it's known in the UK, and then got a job with a UK bank and then a global bank. And that's how I ended up to be working in the US, was over here in late 2006. And they were looking for somebody that could do what I could do. And that was commercial banking training and business-to-business sales training. And that's how we moved to Delaware on the East Coast. And we've lived here since early 2007 and absolutely love it. So uh, my background is mostly commercial banking, financial services. And I moved from being a frontline commercial banker, which I thoroughly enjoyed, into training commercial bankers who were a demanding audience. And from there, that gave me an insight into the combination of human performance and behavioral change, as well as that banking focus of saying, okay, what's this going to do for the, both the top and the bottom line? So and that's, that's what I bring to the business consulting team, that combination of business acumen and human performance, the understanding of human performance and behavioral change. So, um, yeah, so it seems I've sort of navigated towards this role that I'm doing at the moment, and it's really good. I can bring my experience to bear on it. Okay, very good. So, as I mentioned, our topic is quantifying the future success of your organization. So, let's get into it. So, businesses have different definitions of what success is, right? So, how do you go about quantifying that, and how do you know that you've achieved what you've intended? Well, it's... It's funny. People say, oh, we want to be successful. Businesses say we want to be successful. And, you know, the first question is, well, how do you quantify that? How do you know you have been successful? What do you want to be successful at? And that's where my my sort of technical banking background comes into it, because nobody nobody makes an investment of time and effort in something if they, they don't think they're going to get a reward out of it. And, you know, the stimulus for doing that is can be you know, a change in the market or just a desire to have a, a larger market share. But that in and of itself, I think it was Richard Branson said you could sell £10 notes for £9 all day. You know, that will increase your market share, but it won't actually drive your bottom line. So it's no, having a very, very clear idea of what success is to that particular business. And, you know, something we can talk about in a while, but each business, you know, different businesses have different views of success. So how I tend to think about this and work with clients on it is to say, okay, where are you now? And that's generally the stimulus, you know, that present position is not the desired state. So where are you now? Where do you want to be? And that's, that's a conversation that any consultant will have. You know, where do you want to be? And that's that's a great positive conversation. And we, we talk about you know success. And what I find is that not as many people 
talk about the other side of that coin is where do you not want to be? And if you've clearly defined where you want to be and your criteria for success, that other question, where do you not want to be, isn't that difficult a question to answer, but mm. people don't don't seem to ask it. And the reason I ask it is so that people are well aware of the consequences of remaining where they are or not changing or not transforming or not meeting a market challenge. And that then gives the opportunity for the third question is, what's the financial difference between those two points? So if everything goes well and you're being successful, what will that look like? What will that be? What are the business results that you get out of that? How will that change and improve your business for the better? Consequently, if you end up where you don't want to be, all of those same questions apply but to really crystallize people's thinking around that, we ask them to put a dollar or a pound or a rand value on that and say, what does it mean to the organization? And what does it mean to the individual you're talking to if those things don't happen? If you, know, you end up where you don't want to be, what are the consequences? Because by human nature, there are people who are motivated to achieve the prize. And there are mo people that are motivated to move away from pain and discomfort. And sometimes it takes both of those motivators to encourage people to either change or stay the course. And it's having that real, really tough conversation around the consequences of inaction or the consequences of it going wrong that really does focus people's minds in on taking action. It creates, in our jargon, a burning platform so that people realize that they've got to do something. And uh, that's what, what we work on. And then if you've got a very clear idea of what success and what failure is, you know what you need to monitor in order to make sure that you achieve the first one, not the second. Right. Okay. Really interesting. So can you give us like a real life example of what this looks like as it plays out? Yeah, this one I particularly enjoyed working with a client on. It was when I was back in the UK and actually a frontline commercial banker. We were dealing with, the client had a country pub and a bed and breakfast attached to the pub. And he was doing really well. It was one of those beautiful country pubs out near Oxford, in the Oxfordshire countryside. He was in the good beer guide. He was doing everything that he should have been doing to be successful, but it, he wasn't being successful enough for him. And between us, we analysed his business and what he meant by success was he wanted to add both to the top line, revenue and turnover, and also the bottom line, the actual profit that he made from the business. So we had the discussion and had the, you know, to have that conversation about where did he want to be, where did he not want to be. And we also analyzed the, the constituent parts of his business. And you know, with the pub, there's always, there's always beer sales, and he had a lot of those, and he had accommodation, but he's, he's best, and he had a restaurant as well. So he was getting good revenue and profit out of the pub and the restaurant. But we realized that the actual high potential of his business was the bed and breakfast part, which he had been just running as a couple of rooms and doing a very good job, but it wasn't a real focus for his business. And when we analyzed the behaviors of the customers, if they stayed at the bed and breakfast, their, their spending pattern was much, much, very different from the people that did the, you know, buying beer over the counter or just coming to the restaurant for an evening and going away. And what I mean by that is that people would consume more alcohol with their meal um, because they knew they didn't have to drive the car home. And we're talking pre-Uber here, so that, that, that was a big difference. And they would then pay for the accommodation overnight. And in the morning, they would have what they used to be known as a full English breakfast, so a, a full cooked breakfast. And all of those things were highly, highly profitable for the customer and for the, our client in that they graded bar sales. They had a restaurant tab as well in that, you know, they paid for their meal. They probably ate more because they were staying there that night and they certainly drank more. So, and then in the morning, 
they paid for the accommodation. And in the morning, those breakfasts were highly profitable because the profit margin on those was probably the highest part of the business. So he identified high spending customers across his business. And we financed him doubling the number of bed and breakfast rooms that he had. He couldn't go too big because that would have driven his costs up. But he was able to double that size of the business. And that then more than doubled his profits from that portion of the business because of the economies of scale that he was able to generate just merely on six rooms. So it's a small scale, but it's something we can all identify with. You know, if you're staying in a hotel, you tend to have one glass of more wine or whatever than if you were driving home. So he was able to target that. We were able to target that and focus on in on it. And we knew what his success criteria was. And where he didn't want to be was just another pub in the Oxfordshire countryside that was offering good beer. So he stayed away from what he didn't want to be, and he focused on what he did want to be. Interesting. So you helped him focus on that sort of differentiation element and really kind of double down on that. And then that helped him grow his business in a way that made sense for him. Yes, we focused on what was the element of all those, you know, the, the bar sales, the restaurant and the, the B&B, what of that was the best use of capital to inject into the business? And it was once we broke out the numbers, it was clearly obvious that that was the best place to make that investment of additional capital. Okay. So cheers for the pub and B&B. It's <laughs> great for, for that business, but it doesn't always work out that way, right? I'm sure you've had experiences working with clients where for whatever reason, it just, they don't achieve the outcome that they want. So why does this process sometimes go wrong? Well, it's interesting in that everybody seems to have a different view of the future. And if you've not clearly defined what your success criteria are, it's easy to be distracted and draw effort and capital and time into things that are not going to get you where you want to be. I'm a real life example, and it's not a client I've worked with, but this, is, this seems to be in everyone's consciousness at the moment. Disney Plus has just launched. and we looking at that, you think, well, okay, why are they launching now? How are they going to compete with Netflix? And that's drawing a lot of comment in the press at the moment, in the business press. And they clearly have two very different views of the future. That's okay. If they, they focus on, if they are clear on their success criteria, both of those views can be successful. Yeah. But the big differentiator here between Disney and, say, Netflix is Disney has already got this massive catalog of content. And they are approaching this in a very different way. They're going for multiple year subscriptions. They are looking for people to access material that they've already seen before. The demographic of their buyer is going to be really quite different from your stereotypical, your differentiated Netflix viewer. And it's probably going to be families with small children that will enjoy watching those Disney movies and those TV series over and over again. And that's why they are looking to hook those families in for three years or more on a multi-year subscription. To them, to Disney, that is their view of success. They want to hook in families. They want that repeat business that they know it's locked in, that annuity income, and they can add to that library to keep it fresh. But the real value for them as they see it for their clients, is to be able to see those old Disney movies that we all grew up with or we, you know, children love to watch uh, when they're when they're very tiny. Netflix, on the other hand, are taking a very different approach. Their view of the future is they have an incredible amount of data on their clients. They know what their preferences are from the, running their analysis of people's viewing patterns, and they are using that to create new material. And that is then focused on what they know that people want to watch. 
So they are using current viewing data to create new content for the future, whereas Disney is saying we're locking people into existing created data and content, and we will be then driving an annuity business from that. So Netflix are going in one direction. Both of them can be successful, but they've got to have very, very clear ideas of what success is. And you could argue that the Netflix model is riskier and needs to be more agile, whereas the Disney model is more of an annuity type business where people continue to watch the same material and it gets added to steadily. So you know, both will be successful. Disney is almost impossible to imagine the world without Disney. And you know, Netflix continues to be successful. What they need to have an eye on, maybe it's not Disney, but the likes of Apple TV and Hulu and other competitors that are trying to do the same, more something that is more similar to Netflix. And as we know, Apple doesn't always need to be the best at producing something, but people have a tremendous loyalty to it. So that's where that competition is going to play out. So their view of the future would be different again as to how do they maintain that loyalty to Apple rather than somebody going off. And if you've already got an iPhone, an iPad, and all those other Apple products, having Apple TV is a natural progression for you. That's what they're hoping. So that's, again, it's a different view of the future, and they will manage that in have the right data and metrics to ensure that their, their version of success is successful for them. Yeah. So it sounds like for a given company, envisioning, properly envisioning that view of the future that's going to position you to be successful, to actually achieve the success is a complex thing that it sounds like there's so many moving parts. And because ultimately you don't really know what's going to happen in the future and there's always new things coming at you, right? So this sounds like a very dynamic process. And I'm talking specifically about that process of envisioning that future success, right? Because if you get it wrong, that can really have a major negative impact, I would imagine, on your business. Well, yeah. And again, this is an example we're living through at the moment. If we think of Sears, Sears is, as we all know, on the verge of bankruptcy. And there was an article that uh, one of my colleagues referred to me. Um, it's quite an old one, but it's, you know, it's quite old. It's 2016, so it's three years old. Isn't that interesting? We say something is three years old, it's quite old. <laughs> yeah, right. But that, that also denotes the pace of change that is happening. And in that article, it said that 75% of the S&P 500 were likely to turn over within the next 15 years from 2016. So in crude terms, those companies would no longer be large enough to be in the S&P 500. So if that's the case, that's, you know, there is five, there are 500 companies there. 375 companies are going to turn over and drop out of the S&P 500 in the next 15 years. And you think, okay, so that's a shocking statistic. And you say, well, how, how grounded is that? And then you start thinking about Sears. So to link back to your question, if you get the, get the view of the future wrong, yeah. it has enormous consequences because 15 years ago, Sears was imagining the view of the future of a very loyal customer base that went in there for Kenmore products and Land's End products and came to the store, came to the mall, did their shopping that way. They didn't, to the best of my knowledge, invest heavily in internet shopping and making that available mm -hmm. for their customers because they said, you know, our customers don't do that. Well, they didn't do it then, but they are doing it now. And as a consequence, if you go into a Sears store now, they are not well populated. Right. And they don't have a great deal of merchandise because they're not getting the throughput. And with their financial position, it's difficult to obtain merchandise and keep large premises fully stocked. So they 
that then just hastens the cycle as people go in there, can't get what they want, go somewhere else. And if you look at it and say, well, okay, who did get it right? You look at some Target where they, they're that omni-channel. You know what I mean? Target probably was one of the bigger beneficiaries of Sears decline in that clients who were and customers who were going to Sears were looking for a good value purchase and they can get that at Target. Target also was able to appeal to another demographic. Exactly right. But they got their omni-channel right. And that seamless ability to move, the ability to move seamlessly from shopping on your couch to moving to the store to pick it up or go and do that final test of does it fit? How do I look in it? And that omni-channel, I mean, Target has made a very, very good job of that. So Sears didn't have a correct view of the future and didn't, as a consequence, didn't make the right investments. Target did. And you look at the results in the last week or so for Target, they have been, again, very, very strong. Sears, as we say, is is close to bankruptcy now. And, you know, I don't know how many more years or months it's got before it ceases to be a viable company. Yeah. And, and, and Sears has this storied legacy, right? I mean, they've been around for more than a hundred years now, is it? Yeah. Something like that? Yeah. Yeah. And so they had a great run, but the last time I was in a Sears, I'm remembering now is, oh, probably five, six years ago, I think I needed a lawnmower. And I just, and it struck me, wow, I haven't been in a Sears in a long time, but I remember as a kid Mm -hmm. going into Sears when it was still like, yeah, you go to Sears for the stuff you need. At some point, they realized they were going in the wrong direction, but they had gone past the tipping point of them being able to recover it because the cost of re reacquiring the market share they did have, the technology investment to pull that back, the training investment to help the staff encourage that omni-channel shopping was so vast and the market was moving so quickly in that direction. The first movers already had the advantage. They were taking the market share and they unfortunately left the Sears left it too late to be able to turn that around successfully. And that's you go past a point where you're able to recover. And unfortunately they either spotted it just before that point and couldn't make the investment, or now they were past that point. And sadly, you know, that's with my commercial banking background, you know, you're not going to extend massive lines of credit to a company that is on the verge of bankruptcy with a lot of real estate that people are not looking to snap up. And also the clothing manufacturers that supply organizations and and retail that are in a difficult financial situation, they're not going to extend lots of credit to them as well and give them lots of uh, merchandise to be putting in the shops because they don't get the footfall, therefore they don't get the sales, therefore you can't get the premium pricing that you were getting. So once it starts to unravel, it unravels very quickly. So it's having that very clear and tested view of the future and regularly going back and revisiting it. I mean, you don't look at a map of a journey and then put it in the glove box and just keep driving whatever happens because you need to check in on that map. And sometimes, as we all know from Google Maps or Waze or whatever navigation system we use, sometimes there is an accident or a holdup and you need to change your route. Very mundane example, but you know, that's is dynamic, as you say. You've got to keep looking at that map. You've got to keep saying, does this make sense for the reality we are in? Right. Or just because it made sense when we drew it up, does it still hold true? And then that's where it's so valuable to have done the other calculation of what happens if we lose, Mm. if we end up where we don't want to be, what is the cost? Right. And having that really tough conversation around that. Yeah. Especially these days, given the pace of change, like I think you mentioned before, I mean, things are changing month to month, like in really significant ways. And I don't mean to pile on Sears, but I remember when they announced they were merging with Kmart. 
it just struck me like, huh, that's, so they're merging with another company that also is sort of seems to be failing and not changing with the times. Clearly that in the end did not work out. No, but you could understand the logic there of, you know, very similar customer base. Yeah. Probably uh, they could selling similar types of goods, that value purchase. So there is some logic there to say, if we combine, we may have a big enough critical mass to drive down our costs and create some competitive advantage in there Mm. and draw back some of those shoppers that have gone off to Walmart or gone off to Target. Now, as we know, history tells us that they weren't able to do that, but that was a course correct. But it's always looking at the map before you know you're in trouble and saying, you know, does this make sense? And it's what I often refer to as the BBC, the boring but critical. Right. And nobody likes to go back to a plan and say, are we still on plan? You know, are we monitoring carefully and are we doing all these things that we should? Because, you know, if you're on track, yeah, it's great. You just, you're checking boxes. If you're off track, you're going to get bad news. Mm. So, but it's so important that organizations do that. And then it isn't just a cursory check of, yeah, everything looks fine. It is a delving back into it and saying, were the assumptions that, that were made correct when they were made six or 12 months ago? And to your point about the speed of change, it's getting faster and it's only going to get faster. And if you think back to technology, you know, Blockbuster, if we're talking about other companies that didn't make it and that Netflix continuum, the prospect on a Friday night now going to a video store, getting a video and taking it back the next day or on Sunday or whatever um, is just, you know, alien to everybody now. Yeah. It's you, you want to download it and we get frustrated when it starts buffering or there's something wrong and we can't download fast enough. So the whole consumer experience has moved and the demands of the, the consumer have moved. And as the demographic of the audience is changing, digital natives are now a huge part of the buying public. Right. And their demands are far, far higher than people of, say, in their baby boomer Gen X split. You know, the, the, the people that have already retired, those that are coming up to retiring, their demands for generally, I'm stereotyping here, but their demands for a high quality, fast streaming system will probably be less than a digital native or Gen Y or Gen Z. It's hard to keep track of those. Uh, Yes. Yeah. And it's it's always unfair that the millennials always come in for a hard time, but that's, you know, when you start to look at it, it's 20 years of people there. But if you're born between this date and this date, you know, you are a millennial. And we tend to overgeneralize on these things, but certainly the digital native part of both the Gen Y millennial group and Gen Z Mm. are much more demanding and much better adopting technology and therefore driving the pace of change across all things in their lives. Right. And it sounds like the stakes here are extremely high, that if you fail to keep up with the pace of change and to look five years ahead or however much you have to look ahead, and if you get that wrong... I mean, literally, that could be the end of your business, as we see with somebody like Sears, or if not the end, it could really put you at a big disadvantage. That could be hard to come back from. Yes. Yeah. And without being too doomsday scenario about this, yeah, that's, and that, that bears out that prediction and statistic in the business review article that says, you know, 75% of the, the S&P 500 could turn over in the next 15 years. And if you think about some of the, uh, the the large companies that we hear about regularly, Tesla. Tesla didn't really exist 10 years ago. And Tesla wasn't the first manufacturer of electric cars, but they did it in a different way. Yeah. And they are creating a future that was laughable at the time. You know, it appears that, well, no, people won't. 
you know, what are we going to do next? Flying cars and rocket packs. It was that futuristic. But if you've driven a Tesla, yeah. they, are, they are quite a driving experience if you're a car person. Right. And that's, they went after that niche and they've done it now where they've stumbled. They've struggled to create the volume and match the volume and demand. Therefore, they need some of the more traditional expertise of a car manufacturer brought into that company to get the production rates up. And they're now working on that. So and they're, they're being successful on that. Yeah, that's a great example. It seems like just a few short years ago that unless you lived in maybe Silicon Valley or something, it's like Tesla is almost a myth. Until a few years ago, I'm not sure I even saw one on the road. Now I see them all the time. They're becoming, little by little, more ubiquitous. And they seem to be getting that right, as you just said, pretty quickly. Yeah. And I mean, without getting too nerdy about the car thing, it's, you know, the Model S and the Model X were very high performance luxury cars. You know, they were equivalent to the luxury brands, the very high performance models of the luxury brands. The Model 3 brought that electric car experience to not the masses, certainly, but certainly the, the better off in the middle classes could afford the, you know, the, the asking price that is equivalent to a smaller premium brand car. And that's that was the major breakthrough. The other side of, you know, it was a double-edged sword for Tesla in that they then had to ramp up demand. Right. And that's where they they struggled to satisfy that demand and bring down the waiting lists and and delivery times. Right. Although having a lot of demand in some ways seems like a good problem to have if you have to choose problems. Yes. Yeah. Too too many people want our thing. Uh, Yeah. We need to figure out how to supply them. Well, one of the ways you'd hook them in and keep them on a waiting list is take $1,000 off them to start with just to be on the list. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So that did a lot for you know, that was also a cash flow thing. And that's a very good way of keeping people on a waiting list because they've invested $1,000. A few people said, no, I'm not waiting. I'm canceling my order and they lost the deposit. But that made sure there was a demand and they, they could then build towards it. If they'd produce more, would their history have been different? Impossible to say. Interesting times we live in. We've covered a lot of really interesting ground here. So let's wrap things up. What are two or three main points you want our listeners to take away from this discussion? I think the thing is, it's it's having that, without harping on it too much, it's having that very, very clear definition and idea of what success is for your business and to really know what you're trying to achieve and increase market share or greater profitability. It needs to be more granular than that. And so that's, that's the first thing is to have a very, very clear idea of what that success looks like and how you're going to measure it so that you know you're on track. Other side of that coin is have a very, very clear definition of what failure looks like. Because when it gets tough, and this is the endurance athlete mentality, you know, when you're 85% of the way through a marathon or a long bike ride or a triathlon, the temptation to give up is there. It hurts. Um, so is that focusing on what the failure will bring. Yeah will keep people going. It's that away from motivation. I can't be seen to fail. I can't fail. There are too, there's too much at stake. My business, my employees, all those people that I, I feel responsible for as a leader within this organization, all of those things. That's sometimes the negative motivation, the desire to get away from that pain, discomfort, and terrible, how bad you would feel if your business failed is sometimes what it needs to keep people going. So clear idea of what success looks like, clear idea of what the consequences of failure And then, you know, stick with it and remain relevant. Go back to that plan. Does it still make sense? Is what you're trying to achieve still relevant to the market that you find yourself in today? Perfect. Well, Ian, thank you so much for your time and for a really great conversation. I thought that was fascinating. Oh, thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks. The Performance Matters Podcast is brought to you by GP Strategies. 
Together, we can create a world where business excellence makes possibilities achievable. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get podcasts and listen on our website at gpstrategies.com slash podcasts.